let's have Dante's The Divine Comedy 2019 Lecture 15 Cositis and the Traitors to Family and Country Part 1, Cantos 32 and 33, with uh, small parts of 31 uh, today. All right. Last time, we got to the end of Circle 8, to the end of the Malabolgia, to the final 10th pocket where we found four types of falsifiers. After we spoke to them and saw them and saw a brief, vulgar interaction between a counterfeiter, Master Adam, and a liar, Sinon, from Book 2 of the Aeneid by Virgil, we then got a little bit lambasted or excoriated by Virgil for denigrating ourselves by watching such an unworthy display, but then we approached what we thought were at first towers. And yet, as we got closer, as we started to become more familiar with the concept, it started to clear for us. It revealed itself to us. And what was this tower, or what were these groups of towers? Not a city, but giants, and which giants were they? Well, the first two come from Greek mythology. Their names are Ephialtes and Otis. In fact, we get to see Ephialtes, and he will cause a small earthquake, and earthquakes are actually a big part of the Inferno and the Purgatorio. You heard about the earthquake after, or, or which happened during Jesus' death, and uh, uh, caused the Malabranche to sort of be able to lie about the sixth bridge having collapsed during that earthquake. You now hear about an earthquake being, uh, or happening because of Ephialtes shaking in his bonds and his voiceless and impotent Rage, and we'll actually see an earthquake uh, in either Canto 21 or 22 when we hear that Statius, a Roman poet, has been saved. A Roman poet who is a big fan of Virgil and will actually credit his being saved to Virgil, uh, happily and also sadly. In any case, what do we know about Ephialtes and Otis? They were mentioned in the Iliad, and what we know about them is that they mounted two mountains, Mount Asa and Mount Pelion, on top of each other in order to fight against the gods. The idea about these giants is that they are characters or creatures that go beyond the normal natural law and attempt to attack the gods. And so in this way you see a prefiguration of them for Lucifer, or of Lucifer in them, who himself was the preeminent creature in creation who attempted to turn on God. And in fact, when you see uh, Lucifer, something very special that I'll mention to you is that at least in Dante's conception, the idea of the Trinity is that uh, uh, the God is one with three parts or aspects. Something you'll notice with Lucifer is that he has three heads, indicating that if he is now as ugly as he once was beautiful, that he looked almost exactly like God when he was an angel, which is, I think, interesting. In any case, Ephialtes and Otis lost their battle against Zeus, Jove, uh, whichever god defeated them. In, of course, the Iliad, it was Jove or Zeus. And then they were cast down to Tartarus, and now here we have them in the Inferno, and we get to see Ephialtes shake impotently, just as we'll see Lucifer flap his wings impotently. Now, Nimrod. Nimrod is an Old Testament character, not necessarily called a giant in the Old Testament, but the medieval tradition suggested that he was one. Why? Well, he tried to create a giant tower. And what can live in a giant tower? Well, a giant. And the name of the tower was the Tower of Babel. And uh, that's actually where we get the word to Babel from. And as you know what the word to Babel means, to speak meaningless nonsense, well, the reason is this, that supposedly he created this tower to join heaven and earth, to become as great as a god. It's sort of like in uh, Garden of Eden, trying to eat the apple of immortality sort of situation. Humans try to go beyond the natural law and become as gods. And so they tend to make this tower, Jove, 
or Yahweh in this case, becomes angry at them and uh, destroys the tower. And in destroying the tower, separates the people, separates them into different groups with different languages. Confusion enters into the world. And uh, very interesting, too, because I've been listening to a course on linguistics recently by Dr. John McWhorter. Or, uh, yeah, I think that's his last name. Uh, I don't look at his last name that often. Uh, Water or something like that. In any case, he, uh, he actually talks about how it is now the case that linguists attempt to preserve languages. There are about 6,000 languages left. And actually, many languages, uh, one language dies every two weeks or something like that. But it would be very interesting if there were a universal language. I don't know that that would make things worse if everybody could understand each other. Um, and there have been attempts at creating universal languages before. Artificial languages, they're called. The most famous, of course, uh, being invented over 100 years ago called Esperanto. There are supposedly a million people that still speak it. And it's a perfectly logical language, and yet far more people speak English, which is not as logical as it is, which is very interesting. So language is a weird thing. In any case, Nimrod supposedly is the reason why there are so many languages. Now, Briarius. Something I want you to notice because this is very clever of Dante, and I haven't seen anybody else mention this in the scholarship. Dante asks to see Briaris. He says, ooh, I see Ephialtes here, but I really want to see Briaris. Well, why wouldn't you want to see Briaris? He has 50 heads, 100 arms. He's one of the Hecatonchores. And he supposedly helped Zeus win against the Titans and also unbound Zeus. He is apparently a real stud of a mythological character. That's it. Dante doesn't get to see him. We don't get to see him. But we have seen him. We saw him in Book 1 of the Iliad mentioned when Achilleus talked to Thetis. Remember, Thetis recalls to Zeus the fact that she had gotten Briarius to unbind him, and that's why he owes her one and will help her uh, honor her son by hurting the Achaeans for a time. In any case, the reason why Dante doesn't get to see Briarius, I think, is the same reason he doesn't get to talk to Ulysses. He didn't get to read Homer. And so, he doesn't get to see Briarius, and so we don't get to see Briarius here. Which is sort of sad, but... Did we get to see him at one point because we do have access to Homer? Absolutely. So don't feel too, uh, don't feel like you've missed too much. And then, of course, the last giant, who is the only one who can speak and is unfettered, is Antaeus, sometimes called Antaeus. He is a giant who, on uh, one of the 12 legendary works of Hercules, uh, one was Hercules had to defeat an invincible giant who derived strength from the ground, uh, or derived strength from the ground, because his mother was the ground underneath his feet, Gaia, Mother Earth. Hercules then picked him up, threw him on his shoulder, and killed him. So he picked him up off the ground and killed him in that way. That said, Antaeus is still here and ready to take us down in a Gerion-like way from Circle 8 to Circle 9. So let's do that. Uh, notice, too, also that the pilgrim uh, is not exactly brave yet. Come here so I can hold you. Again, he wants to be held just like he was held on Gerion, says Virgil. And let's see, let's see. Ah, yes. And I also just want you to notice this again. Notice this again. So did Antaeus seem to me as I watched him bend over me a moment when I'd have preferred to take some other road. He doesn't want to be moved by a giant in his hand, apparently. But gently, on the deep that swallows up, both Lucifer and Judas, he placed us, nor did he so bent over stay there long, but like a mast above a ship, he rose. Why is it that I draw our attention to like a mast above a ship? Like, as we know, is obviously a simile indicator, like as is. What sort of simile is this? The sort of simile we've been following along, particularly since Gerion, yes? It's an aquatic or nautical simile. Very good. It's like we are on an aquatic journey. Yes, I mean, actually, 
Uh, funny that I should say that because we are going down to an aquatic place. We will, and I love this picture by William Blake, be deposited now in the Circle Nine along the Cocytus River, the frozen river of traitors. Yes. When we were down below in the dark well beneath the giant's feet and lower yet, with my eyes still upon the steep embankment, I heard this said to me, Watch how you pass. Walk so that you not trample with your souls the heads of your exhausted, wretched brothers. A movie that you might watch when you're over 17, because I believe it's rated R with Robin Williams in it, called What Dreams May Come, actually involves a trip through uh, hell uh, in order to try and uh, have a suicide escape from there. And there is actually a scene where Cositis is shown and somebody's face is stepped on. It's a very stark scene. I highly recommend at some point in your life that you see that. In any case, I think it does a good job. Let's talk a little bit about Circle Nine before we get into it. Circle Nine, the final circle of the Inferno, is split into four different zones. They are called Caina, Antonora, Ptolemaea, and Judeca. They each have a very specific sort of center. They're each named for a specific sort of traitor. And so, the first sorts of traitors we run into in Cana are traitors against families. Based on the Cain and Abel story from Genesis, it's one of the first stories in Genesis, Cain and Abel are the first children born to Adam and Eve, and they both make sacrifices to this Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai, God, and uh, Abel's are accepted and looked on with favor, and Cain's are not. And so Cain, rather than taking the criticism and proving himself, uh, decides to take out his wrath, his wrath, on his brother Abel, he kills his brother Abel. This is where the very famous quote, Am I my brother's keeper? comes from. That's what he says directly to God after he has done what he has done. And so, Cana is named for those who are traitors against family. Antonora. Now, this is another instance of Dante not exactly knowing his Homer. In the Iliad, Antonor was a fantastic advisor to Priam. Uh, as far as we know, he was never a traitor, but in the medieval tradition, apparently he was seen as sort of a conniving traitor, just in the same way that Ulysses was seen as sort of conniving. You see that perceptions of characters change uh, over time, uh, in particular in relation to the national characters of people. Remember that Odysseus was good to Greeks, but then to Romans he was uh, sort of denigrated a little bit, and then again to Italians who are the descendants of Romans. In any case, Antonora is named for political traitors. Ptolemaea. Ptolemaea has two antecedents, potentially. One is the brother to Cleopatra, the famous Cleopatra, who was lover to Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. His name is Ptolemy XII. In fact, he and his sister Cleopatra are part of the Ptolemaic dynasty. There was also another Ptolemy, captain of Jericho. We'll hear uh, about Jericho again when we talk about Rahab the prostitute. She was supposedly the first person led from hell into heaven, a prostitute of all people. And she was actually a, uh, she held spies in Jericho to help it fall. In any case, there was this Ptolemy who was a captain of Jericho who honored and then murdered Simon Maccabee and his two sons. And so, Ptolemaea is for those who are traitors against guests. You kill somebody at your own feast. And so Clytemestra and Agisthos would be Ptolemaic, uh, potentially also in Cana. It's hard to say sometimes with these Greek tragedies. Though, actually, I can say it would be Ptolemaic for, uh, uh, for um, Clytemestra, but it would be Cana for Aegisthos. Why? Because Aegisthos is actually a blood family member of Agamemnon's, uh, of the Atreides dynasty, but um, 
but in the Greek tradition, your wife wasn't actually part of your family by blood, and so if she were killed, the Furies would not come after you, so she was not technically a blood family member. In any case, the final circle, or sub-circle, along Cocytus, where people will be frozen entirely, is called Judeca. Judeca is named for Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve disciples of Jesus, who walked along with him, and he's one of his best friends, one of the people that upheld his principles best. He sold out Jesus, who was a living God, for 30 pieces of silver. And uh, even though Jesus knew it, at the Last Supper, supposedly, he says, one of you will betray me. The person who will betray him has already betrayed him in his heart. And that person was Judas Iscariot. We will see Judas Iscariot being nom nom don, chewed on eternally by Satan in the next couple of cantos. In any case, Judeca is named Judeca because of Judas Iscariot. And it is for traitors against rightful lords and benefactors. We'll see a couple other people down there, Cassius and Brutus too, more secular characters. All right. Good, good, good. We've talked about this. We don't need to do that. All right, let's get down to it. And while we were advancing toward the center to which all weight is drawn, I shivering in that eternally cold shadow, I know not if it was will or destiny or chance, but as I walked down among the heads, I struck my foot hard in the face of one. At that, I grabbed him by the scruff and said, we've just moved a little, notice that. We've moved about uh, 11 lines ahead. You'll have to name yourself to me or else. You won't even have one hair left up here. Though you should trick me bald, I shall not tell you who I am or show it. Not if you pound my head a thousand times. His hairs were wound around my hand already, and I had plucked from him more than one tuft while he was barking and his eyes stared down. When someone else cried out, what is it, boca? Notice that boca, just as in Spanish, means mouth here, so he's somebody who mouths off. Isn't the music of your jaws enough? For you without your bark. He's saying, I uh, don't usually chatter enough in this frozen river enough. Do you need to be talking? And then uh, let's let's just move forward. So a couple things about that situation. I'm not going to read the entirety of it to Dante is walking and he accidentally, possibly accidentally, by chance, by destiny, by will, kicks some traitor in the face. He then attempts to get the traitor to identify himself by grabbing his hair and pulling tufts of hair out, causing him pain. He says, you you won't get me to do this. Well, why, why does the traitor deny uh, Dante knowledge of him? Well, he's ashamed of where it is he is. I'm, I appreciate the hand. And uh, is that what you were going to say? Yes, very good. Very good. It is because he is ashamed of how deep he is. And actually, you see a microcosm of the punishment and the sin itself. One of the other traitors betrays the identity of Boca. And so then Boca will betray the identities of other people down here. They are very much still traitors. And in fact, they, uh, they betray each other uh, by revealing the identities of each other. It would be sort of like saying, well, was Don really bad when he told Ulysses and Diomedes the location of the Thracians? He told them the truth. It's like, yes, but why did he tell them the truth? He told them the truth so that they would go kill people that he had a, rela a trusting relationship with. And so... Was that appropriate? I think this is a good way to look at, there's an old uh, ethical question, which is, if you lived during the time of the Holocaust, and you were in Germany, and you were trying to save the life, lives of a Jewish family, and they were hiding in your home, and Nazi troops came to your door and knocked on it and said, are you keeping a family in here away from public authority? Should you say yes? 
And I think the answer is, well, if you want to be honest, the answer is yes. But is it truly being honest to give up the location of people who have trusted you? Well, no. And I, I think part of the way you would answer that is through Thomas Aquinas saying, an illegitimate authority is no authority at all. And so even though you're supposed to be honest to the government and to a rightful authority above you, if it is a non-rightful authority, like a tyrant or a fascist regime or a Nazi regime in this case, then uh, it's actually bad to be good to them or to follow what they do, even though in general it would not be. So I don't know. That's a very interesting way of looking at things. So, all right. Bogus is so ashamed of his place in hell that he refuses to speak at first. Another spirit then reveals, betrays his name against his will. And Boca correctly identifies other spirits, but misuses language and therefore his intellect by speaking to betray and thus destroy the trust or relationship rather than build it between him and with whom he communicates. Sort of like the opposite of being like, say, a teacher or a mentor to somebody. When I communicate with you, I communicate with you truths in order so that you can uh, be, uh, have a better life. I don't communicate with you truths to ruin your life or end your life. In any case, let's meet... Two of the arch-traitors of all of hell, they are Count Ugolino and Archbishop Ruggieri. A couple things I want you to notice immediately are these. A, Count Ugolino. He is a secular authority. B, Archbishop Ruggieri. He is a sacred authority. Next thing, Count Ugolino is very much Guelph. Archbishop Ruggieri is very much a Gidling. They are connected together physically. In fact, Count Ugolino is eating the exposed brain through the skull of Archbishop Ruggieri for all time. That's exactly what this picture by Gustave Doré displays. We had already taken leave of him. When I saw two shades frozen in one hole, again this theme of two in one, Ulysses and Diomedes, Farinata and Cavalcanti, Archbishop Ruggieri, and Count Ugolino, Francesca and Paolo as well. And just as with all of those, except for Farinata and Cavalcanti, one will speak, one will not speak. So that one's head served as the other's cap. That's the one biting on top of it. And just as he who's hungry chews his bread, that's a, uh, that's a Christian metaphor, by the way, the creation of the additional bread and fish uh, after the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, one sinner dug his teeth into the other, right at the place where the brain is joined to the nape. No differently had Titius, as father of Diomedes, gnawed the temples of Menalipus out of indignation. And this one chewed the skull and the other parts. Oh yeah, I, I love this part, just because it's so grisly. That sinner raised his mouth from his fierce meal. He's going to look up from eating to talk to us. So we're having a meal with him. It's like a corruption of the host. And you may not know this, in Catholic circles, what they do on Sundays is they have a sacrament called the taking of the host. They eat a piece of bread, which is called the wafer, which is symbolically transformed into the body of Christ. And then, so the idea is that you're all there together, having a what together? You're having a meal together. Exactly. And there's supposed to be some idea that in having that meal together, you don't simply physically transform, but you spiritually transform. Well, this is a corruption of that idea. Because this man is also eating the body of something, but not the body of a god which leads to spiritual transformation. He's leading, eating the actual body of another human in a cannibalistic way. We have a very different way of looking at that, right? And so it is purely physical. It is purely vulgar. It is an ugly 
situation. It is an ugly meal to be a part of. And uh, speaking of movies, again, another rated R movie that is uh, later in your life. If you ever get interested in watching Silence of the Lambs or, or Hannibal, there is an, a, a very grisly scene. Hannibal is a, uh, a cannibal where he will be doing something very similar to Count Ugolino and Ruggieri. Uh, and that is clearly based on this inspect. But let's get to the grisliness here. That center raised his mouth from his fierce meal, then used the head that he had ripped apart in back. He wiped his lips upon its hair. It's like that utterly sophisticated moment where someone takes their napkin and they dab their lips before they speak is made grisly here. And so instead of a napkin, I'm eating her brain, ah, and then I use her hair to wipe off my mouth of her brain and blood. Yuck, right? Exactly. Exactly. All right. Let's talk about them. Meet Count Ugolino. We have exited Cana, and we have entered Antonora. The only person from Cana you need to know about is Boca. Antonora, as I said, is the zone of political traitors based on a misconception by the medievals that Antonora was a traitor to Troy. Now, after a major naval defeat, Count Ugolino became the podesta of Pizza. Pisa, excuse me, alongside his grandson, Nino Visconti. In fact, he was actually placed there by the Ghibelline Archbishop Ruggieri in order to, um, uh, in order to secure the position. There's actually another fact that's not coming to my mind right there. There was a, the, the reason was that Count Ugolino was put in this position. I'm forgetting this right now. I'm going to move on in any case. Count Ugolino became Podesta of Pisa. He was made Podesta, which means mayor, that's the same position that Dante would later occupy in Florence, alongside his grandson Nino Visconti. They were both Guelphs. He then ceded several castles to Luca and Florence, which created a rift between him and his grandson and their Guelph followers. These, these castles, which had been Guelph holdings, were sold off for cheap to Ghibellines. Count Ugolino, a Guelph, then conspires with Pisan Ghibellines, led by Archbishop Ruggieri, to expel his grandson, Nino Visconti, after they have become slightly estranged from each other, from Pisa. You can see that he, or Pisa, I can't believe I keep calling him Pisa. And you can see here that he has already betrayed his family member and is already politically betrayed. Well, after he exiles his grandson, from Pisa and takes control, Archbishop Ruggieri turns on him, betrays him, and has him locked in the so-called Tower of Hunger for eight months, supposedly with two of his sons and two of his grandsons. So after he betrays his son in a political maneuver, his grandson rather, he is then turned around and betrayed himself. You can see why Archbishop Ruggieri and Count Ugolino's uh, bodies and fates are interlocked. Ah, yes. And so I'm not going to read the entirety of what he says to us. But I will just briefly, briefly summarize it. Count Ugolino focuses... Uh, will I say it? Will I say it? Okay, I'll read a little bit of it to you. I'll, I'll read this part to you. This is after he's put into the tower and the door is locked so that no food will come back up. I want you to focus on what elements he puts in this speech, and what elements he leaves out. I did not weep. Within I turned the stone. They wept, his sons and grandsons. 
And my poor little Anselm said, Father, you look so, what is wrong with you? At that I shed no tears, and all day long, and through the night that followed, did not answer until another son had touched the world. It's a long time already without eating. As soon as a thin ray, look at that language, had made its way into that sorry prison, and I saw reflected in four faces my own gaze, out of grief I bit it my own hands! And they, who thought I'd done that out of hunger, immediately rose and told me, Father, it would be far less painful for us if you ate us. Oh. For you clothed us in this sad flesh. It is for you to strip it off. This is supposed to remind you very much of the ugliest possible situation, which is this. That which is represented by Kronos and Zeus. Kronos and his children. It is a father eating his sons. It is the past eating the future. It is the opposite of how things are supposed to be. The father is not supposed to kill and consume the body of his son. The father is supposed to produce and help build up the body and then mind of his son. And so this is the one of the most unnatural things that can possibly occur, and that is probably why you feel really icky while it is being said. And so let's keep going. Then I grew calm to keep them from more sadness. Through that day and the next, we all were silent. Oh, hard earth, why did you not open up? But after we had reached the fourth day, four days without food, God, who throwing himself outstretched down at my feet, implored me, Father, why do you not help me? And there he died. And just as you see me, I saw the other three fall, one by one, between the fifth day and the sixth. It's very much like a story uh, called, And Then There Were None, that came much later, where uh, characters are sort of in a bottle, they're on an island together, and they just slowly start to die. And the punishment for the worst of the, they'd all committed crimes, in some way worthy of capital punishment, so a judge had decided. And uh, the worst punishment was actually reserved for the people that died last. Why? The idea being that they had to live in suspense and also watch everybody they knew die around them at first. And so Ugolino does, in a way, have the worst punishment here. Which, now blind, he's now blind, I started groping over each, and after they were dead, I called them for two days. That's about six days without food. Then fasting had more force than grief. We assume that that means that he ate them. When he had spoken this with eyes awry, again he gripped the sad skull in his teeth, which like a dog's were strung down to the bone. Ah, Pisa, you the scandal of peoples of that fair land, where sea is heard, that means if, because your neighbors are so slow to punish you, may then Capara and Gorgana move and build a hedge across the Arno's mouth, that's a river, so that it may drown every soul. You, my goodness, a man eating his children. All right, good, good. All right, so this will be how we conclude today. After Ugolino's speech concludes, Virgil and Dante move on to the next part of Circle 9. That is the third subcircle. That is Ptolemaea with sinners lying supine. That means on their backs, encased in ice, face up with tears crusted over their eyes. In fact, we're going to meet a man named Froderick Alberingo. Alberingo. And so, what I wanted you to notice about Ugolino's story is this. What a grisly, terrible story. Sounds like something terrible was done to him. It is a pathetic story. It is a story that attempts to make an appeal to your emotions by focusing on what we in literary circles call pathos. But what does he not mention at all? That he was being punished for crimes he had actually committed. 
In fact, that, uh, that, I mean, that's a very interesting argument. In fact, I saw for a documentary last night uh, the same sort of argument made. Because he is caused pain from his punishment, he ought not to be punished because of the pain that his legitimate punishment causes him. It is one of the most illogical statements I can possibly imagine. He is trying to make us feel bad for him because of how bad his life ended. And yet his life ended in that way precisely because of his own treacherous ways. And so the question becomes, should you focus on how bad the punishment was or how bad the act was that earned that punishment? Huh. Very interesting. Very interesting there. And yes, again, you see a use of language where he focuses on one aspect of the situation, but not the cause of the situation itself. It is, again, a dishonest use of language. And in fact, it is trying to get us to have our emotions betray our minds by empathizing with a traitor rather than seeing him for what he truly is. And so, a big question that is asked here generally is, who has the worst punishment then? Ruggieri, who has his brain being eaten and his skull gnawed on by Ugolino? Or Ugolino, who is himself biting on and gnawing on the skull? of Ruggieri. Now, I think a lot of people think Ugolino does not have the worst punishment because being eaten is worth, worse than eating. But you have to remember your Plato. Plato says, and Dante seems to also believe this, that to commit a sin is worse than to have one committed against you because it denigrates your character and your soul to sin. And so, is it worse to have someone betray you or to be betraying someone else? Is it worse to be cannibalized by someone or to cannibalize someone else? In this case, it seems that Dante, alongside Plato, is suggesting that it is, in fact, Ugolino who has the worst punishment. But we'll have to talk about that in the seminar because I think it is an open question. All right. And that is where we will conclude today.